Uh, thanks, Leonor, for that disturbingly accurate introduction. And uh, thank you, Brian, for inviting me as the token Dutchman on stage. <laughs> now, I'm not sure if you know this, but whenever Brian invites one of us Dutchies to uh, come to his conference, he gives us one instruction, and he, he says, just be Dutch. <laughs> so I guess I won't waste anyone's time, and I'll get straight to the most Dutch thing in the world, and that's ice skating. During the 1980 Winter Olympics in Lake Placid, two miracles occurred. The first involved the US ice hockey team, and they defeated the unbeatable Russians. Among the 8,000 people lucky enough to get a ticket for this game was Eric Haydn. Haydn was a speed skater who was so fired up by his country's victory that he couldn't get to sleep that night. He actually overslept the next day and miss, almost missed his own race. He had to skip the warm-up, but still he won gold on the 10,000 meters. In fact, he won all the gold medals in men's speed skating, five in total. Eric Haydn was the second miracle of the 1980 Winter Olympics. When this man from Madison, Wisconsin, crossed the finish line in his 10K with the astonishing world record-breaking time of 14 minutes and 28 seconds. The Dutch sports reporter, Mart Smeets, famously yelled, this time will never be beaten. This time will never be beaten. 34 years later, on November 2nd, 2014, speed skater Jos de Vos from the town of Boskoop <laughs> finished his 10K in the Dutch National Championships in Heerenveen. And the circumstances of his preparations that morning are not known, but Jos de Vos crossed the finish line after 13 minutes and 39 seconds. He was almost a full minute faster than the time that would never be beaten. And with this time, the time that shattered Haydn's unbeatable record, Jos de Vos came in last at the <laughs> Dutch National Championships. <laughs> My fellow speechwriters and friends, I work for the Dutch Ministry of Finance, and I once used this story, this seemingly irrelevant story, for a speech on Budget Day. Now, that's the day that the Dutch government presents the plans for the year to come, and I think th such a day is common in most of our countries, but the Dutch Budget Day is famous for two speeches. Firstly, our king delivers the speech from the throne in which he comments on the state of the Netherlands. Now, contrary to what my mother believes, I don't write that speech. <laughs> I have nothing to do with the king or his speech. <laughs> Secondly, the Minister of Finance gives an address to Parliament presenting the government's plans and how it th thinks to pay for them. Now, that's the one I write. And it won't surprise you that for us at the Finance Ministry, Budget Day, it's the most important day of the year. It's our Christmas. And for the speechwriters, 
The minister's speech to Parliament is Christmas dinner. And two years ago, I started preparations months in advance. The Dutch economy was, was just picking up again after the financial crisis. And we wanted the speech to be uplifting, but also realistic. Now, it was promising that the economy had started growing again, but it was also worrisome that for many years to come, it was expected to grow no more than 2% a year. Now, for all you former students of Lenin and literature and linguistics, 2% year growth is an economy's way of saying, meh. <laughs> so that's what I had to work with. And that was where the story about Jos de Vos and Eric Haydn's unbeatable time came in. The message was, boundaries exist only in our minds, including that supposedly limited growth forecast. I still believe that this is one of the best policy speeches I've ever written. And today I'm going to tell you how it was shut down, ripped to pieces, and never heard of again. <laughs> I'm also going to explain how I first thought that the bureaucrats were to blame for this. But when I dug a little deeper, I learned that the real culprit is you. So I'll start at the beginning, and hopefully we'll all learn something. And if not, I will take comfort in the fact that some of you will be offended, most of you will yawn, and none of you will remember any of this next week. <laughs> but before I get back to speed skaters and economies going mad, I'd like to tell you something about how I write speeches. I sometimes use an iPad. Now, I, I have a new model uh, with a little detachable keyboard for writing. And it, it looks great, and it's filled with all these technical marvels, and I hate it. I detest writing on it because of autocorrect. And I'm not a complete idiot. I know there's a button that says, turn off autocorrect. In fact, I've swiped it so many times that I fear it might sue me for sexual harassment. <laughs> but for reasons beyond me, my iPad keeps randomly changing the words I write. Downward spiral becomes Down syndrome. And various builds turns into serious balls. <laughs> so it dawned on me, writing a policy speech with the help of bureaucrats is a lot like writing with, on an iPad with autocorrect gone wrong. <laughs> I think you know what I mean. You've talked to the specialists, you've used their input, and you've made their financial wizardry comprehensible. You've written a speech that's out there enough to get a good press, but at the same time is traditionally enough to avoid a backlash. You've added a metaphor to explain the problem, an anecdote for comic relief, and a simple but clear argumentation, creating such a strong case that no one can really disagree. And then I got my budget day draft back with suggestions from the policy people. Now, these are the specialists who know every number in the budget, and they pleaded for my speech to be more nuanced and more factual. And they objected to the speed skating story because it was insubstantial and too rhetorical. <laughs> there were more suggestions. Someone had written, this metaphor is not the same 
as the thing it refers to. <laughs> when, when, out, when outcasts sing, shake it like a Polaroid picture, they're not being literal, are they? What's more, my bureaucrat friends had done me the favor of deleting an anecdote because it might just offend someone, somewhere, sometime. This is, of course, a risk we cannot take. And lastly, one of my three simple but clear arguments had magically disappeared because it was negative. To remedy the fact that the speech was now missing 300 words, they'd written, add more substance in the margin. <laughs> what that substance should be was not specified. My first reaction to comments like these is always the same. I hate you, you bastard covered bastard with bastard filling. But after I've calmed down, I ask myself, were these comments really written by my bureaucrat friends? Or is autocorrect playing tricks on me? Sometimes it's, it's difficult to comprehend how such brilliant people write such bizarre things. Once you've do, been doing this job for a couple of years, you start to notice a pattern. And I think blind spots are the problem. As a group, policy people are wired in a way that makes it difficult for them to communicate successfully. Firstly, they have what Steven Pinker calls the burden of knowledge. They're way too smart, and they cannot possibly fathom that anyone doesn't know everything that they know. I've met people who not only think that the abbreviation ESM is as common as OMG, they also believe that explaining what the European stability mechanism actually is would be an intellectual race to the bottom. <laughs> Secondly, policy people generally have a fear of clarity because being clear, that makes you vulnerable. So instead of saying, let's make our budget great again, they say, our key goal well aware as we are that goals suppose a non-existence cause and relationship between the thing that is to be attained and the attaining itself is to reach a balance between assets and liabilities, notwithstanding, of course, the European budget indicators vis-a-vis -vis the two and the six-pack, but with every intention of attaining a level that can be considered significant. <laughs> Thirdly, most bureaucrats at the finance ministry have a religious belief in truth and facts. And they also believe in models, which they think are little fact-making machines. Let's just say that Derrida or Foucault or Lyotard have yet to become household names at our ministry. <laughs> Suggesting to them that truth is little more than all the facts and figures and examples that support our preferences it's a little like telling a five-year-old that Santa Claus is actually Uncle Henry with a beard. <laughs> a consequence of this 19th century idea of the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth is that most bureaucrats believe our communication theories work in the same way as their models. And this, I think, is a problem that's as destructive as the burden of knowledge and the fear of clarity. So I could go on and whine some more about how difficult our jobs are. And I could cry about how they don't get us. 
But frankly, I think the biggest problem is that policy people actually believe what we say. So let's get uncomfortable. Because we, whether we like it or not, the call is coming from inside the house. We also have blind spots. For one thing, we also claim to know the truth. Recently, for example, we've presented storytelling as a master key to unlock all doors. And we've presented the positive impact of storytelling as the second truth that's universally acknowledged. While in reality, storytelling is much more like detoxing or mindfulness. It's pseudoscience wrapped in effective marketing. And this is all popular for a while. But after these things lose their appeal, uh, th these things lose their appeal as soon as it becomes clear that they only work on the very, very specific circumstances. And I think Paul Oster described the circumstances for storytelling best. Story stories only happen to people who are able to tell them. That's it. I think a story doesn't necessarily have to be a positive tale about your organization's success, as the gurus want to make us believe. Now, to be clear, I love to tell stories. I hate storytelling. It's labels like these that make us look bad. Storytelling makes me hate my profession in the same way that George Bush made me hate freedom. <laughs> and, and Lance Armstrong made me hate cancer survivors. <laughs> I think storytelling hurts speechwriters in the same way that Vanilla Ice hurt rap music in the 90s. <laughs> and this is only one of the many overly polished communication strategies that we push. Frame and counterframe. Start with the why. Tell inspiring tales about hope. Take your customers on a journey. Kill your darlings. And most damaging of all, communi only communicate in a positive way. Or in terms of Winnie the Pooh, be like Tigger, not Eeyore. <laughs> For the experienced writer, these are all strategies you can use. But consider all the untrained policy people who believe in facts and models and truth and things that make perfect sense. For them, these are strategies you must use. Trying to improve a text by chucking in all these communication strategies, it's like changing a light bulb by using all the tools in the shed. The paintbrush won't do much harm. But once you get to the hammer, you're in trouble. <laughs> so it's hardly surprising that the comments on my budget day speech resembled a drunken autocorrect. Because you cannot create contrast when you only communicate in a positive way. You cannot successfully communicate news if you compulsively start with the why. And imagine the tragedy if you really do kill your darlings, all of them. Now, I know these strategies work some of the time, but some of the time is not all of the time. And that's where it goes south. We act too much as if we've dissected communication in a laboratory. We point to the colored blotches on MRI scans, and we claim that we can move our audiences towards revelation or revolution, as if they had an on-off switch. But I think audiences are much more like dates. The interesting ones are just not that easy. My friends. George Orwell once wrote 
that his political writing contained too much of what a full-time politician would consider irrelevant. I think Orwell was wrong. I think the seemingly irrelevant is actually what makes political writing great. Because politics isn't about the truth of things, it's about your take on things. And this is where irrelevance comes in. When you make the irrelevant align with your message, you surprise your audience. Often you even make them smile. It's that same feeling as not getting a joke immediately. And that's what I aim for. Sadly, hooray for irrelevance doesn't have a great ring to it, marketing-wise. Never mind, we don't need it. We need to stop selling our craft by pushing pseudoscience and overly polished marketing in the faces of the people who are trying to convince of our importance. We need to be honest and say, speechwriters have two things to offer. Experience and eloquence. One usually comes after the other. First you write for thousands of hours. Then when all the rules of style and spelling and grammar are second nature to you, you break some of them to surprise your audience with eloquence. It's as simple as that. Let's return to my speech for budget day. Now, to be honest, I did give in to some of the bureaucrats' comments. Of course I did. And rightly so, because as it turned out, I oversimplified quite a bit. But when it came to the speed skating story, I put my foot down. Later, when I read this story to the minister, he looked at me with a puzzled expression. And then he started laughing and he said, that's fantastic. Jos de Vos came in last. Still laughing, he added, but I'm not going to use it. <laughs> it turned out he just doesn't like speed skating that much. And he wanted something closer to home, he said. And then he looked at me expectantly. I started to panic because I just hadn't considered that the speed skating story might stumble so close to the finish line. And then, much to my own surprise, I blurted out, well, how about dragons? <laughs> and I started telling this story I just read about the man and, uh, who made the maps and the globes for the great explorers back in the Renaissance. I told the minister how these cartographers had blind spots, real ones. They literally didn't know what lay beyond the known world. So they wrote Hixum Dracones on the edges of the map. Here be dragons. As men like Columbus and Cook discovered, it took various bills, uh, I mean serious balls, to sail beyond the edge of the world. But of course, there weren't any dragons, and the rewards were great. And the same was true of the economic growth forecast that some said couldn't exceed 2% a year. We just have to reach further than people claim is possible. At that point, I stopped talking, and although I saw the hesitation, there were not enough objections to kill the story. And when I drafted the new version of the speech and I shared it with the policy people, of course they went nuts. Dragons in Parliament? Are you insane? But I kept the story, and in the end, the minister did talk about dragons in front of 150 elected representatives of the people. Most of the reactions were positive. Several MPs smiled, and my mom called <laughs> to say she told all the neighbors how proud she was that I'd written the king's speech. <laughs> and some journalists actually said nice things. I must admit that none of them yelled into the microphone that this story could never be beaten. I guess it was just a bit too irrelevant.
Thank you. <laughs> I think it took various bills to say to speechwriters that they uh, should break their own rules. Anyone uh, really intrigued by this? Breaking your own rules? Using stories that you think are maybe inappropriate? Words. You need to collect. I need to collect words, as I do. I thought I'd mix, I thought I'd mix it up, but you people like structure. Okay, structure. Three words. Yeah. I'll go uh, do the question uh, after that. Three words. Dragons. Dragons? That's nice for the non-Dutch. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you guys how to spell it later. I think Sarah had a question. Yeah. Um, yeah. Could I ask everyone who has a question to really speak up? And I yeah. might even repeat okay. it to the audience so that okay. everyone can hear. Okay, I'm a mum that's going to be a challenge, but I'll try. Um, so when you How do you fight for your dragons? How do you re-energize when you've had criticism that sort of knocks you off your feet? I think the, the cool thing to say would be that, that I, I'm, I'm really tough and that, that I, I fight them. But the honest thing to say is that I, I kind of trade. Uh, so I give in to some of the, uh, the comments if, if it's reasonable. And I'll, I'll, uh, I'll fight for some of it. And that, that usually works. Most people you can actually reason with. And, um, if, if I talk about policy people uh, in a negative way, I don't mean every individual one, of course. So there are some you can actually work with, but some it's, it's really, really difficult and you have to trade a bit. Yeah. I think it's also a good point you made about uh, being clear uh, means being vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Have, has anyone in the audience mm -hmm. uh, had experience with that? Speakers afraid of being vulnerable? Yeah, I mean with policy speeches, you're often, well, yeah, you come back to years in the European Commission, you're asked to write a, a speech about a, a topic on which the organization doesn't have policy. So you, you know, throw together a lot of platitudes and put in a vague call for action without actually committing your own organization to doing anything. But uh, yeah, definitely, you know, particularly policy, politicians and senior officials don't necessarily want to say something that they'll be held accountable. Yeah. True. If any, oh, Lech has a question. I was just going to ask because I really liked it about counter makes vulnerable as well, and, and vulnerable is is what most people are terrified of, especially youth. Um, do you do you have any particular strategies that you use to try and bring people into that vulnerable space, that the space that's not reflective? Ask as many questions as possible up front, but this is not always possible, of course, but that, that usually works. Um, now, m the, the minister I write for is, is uh, he's actually pretty, pretty strong on stage. He's, he, he's not really that, uh, per, funny per se or, or a great speaker, but he, he has confidence, so that works. Um, so he, he has the confidence to say the things he wants to say. So it usually works. Yeah? yeah? Well, that's perfect. Thank okay. you very much. That's a point.